Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Inner Light with Ellen podcast. I'm glad you're here today. I am very happy to be bringing you a conversation I had with my friend Matan Gold. He and I um, share history in that he works where I used to work, and he actually has the the job, the position that I used to hold, though it has shifted under his steady hand and good directions. Um, and we've just had an opportunity to be able to work a little bit on a few projects over the past few months. And we keep ending up in these really rich conversations sort of after the topic at hand is, is completed. And so I invited him onto the show because it's a chance for us to talk um, out loud about these experiences we had. So Matan is um, a transracial adoptee. He is um, mixed race and bicultural. I am um, not an adoptee, but I do share the mixed race and bicultural piece and how those experiences kind of growing up in America in the 80s for me, 80s and 90s, um, for for the both of us, um, how they affect our our how we show up in the world today, what we're learning about life in America, showing up in the ways that we do, how we're unpacking, repacking, and also thinking through like what the day to day can look like for everyone, regardless of their background, um, to advance the kind of belonging I think we all aspire to. Um, enjoy the episode. It's probably one of my favorite conversations I've been able to have to date for the show. And um, thank you very much for listening. Welcome to Inner Light with Ellen. I'm Ellen Wyoming Deloy, your host. Listen in as I dive in on topics and conversations from wellness and well-being to social justice and liberation. I'm always focused on what we can be doing in our day-to-day to to create the life we want to be living and the world we want to be living in. The show starts now. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Um, I'm here today with my guest and friend, Matan Gold, and I'm excited um, to have this conversation for the podcast. Uh, I've had the opportunity over the past, I feel like few months at this point, to keep ending up in these really interesting conversations with Matan um, around... um, community engagement, working with oppressed and marginalized voices and ensuring that they're centered within place and policy making for government. So heads up, everyone who's listening, this conversation is a lot about sort of like systems of government and systems of how people have power. And and that's one of the conversations I really wanted to have with Matan on the podcast, because I just keep hearing him talk about things in ways that are so clear and so fresh to my ears. And at the same time, uh, he and I were kind of realizing the last time we had this uh, uh, sort of a brief offline conversation, how it's being missed also in, in some, in some spaces and how that's really interesting. So I kind of wanted to sit and unpack this couple other things that you should know, because I'm going to keep talking for just a minute here. Um, Matan and I uh, are connected because of Matan's place of work where I used to work. And Matan is actually in the job I used to have. Um, uh, I was there from 2014 to 2018. Matan came in a little, I think there was one person in between. It wasn't a great fit. And then they finally found Matan. And so now it's good. And you've been there since 2018. Is that about right? 
2019. Oh, yeah. it took him a while to find you. Okay, great. Yes. I remember that there was this like big <laughs> lag and I was like, I remember doing a lot of work and I don't know how that work is happening if no one is in that job for a while. Um, and so Matan, I'm sure the position has shifted a bit since I was there. When I was there, my, my goal and role was to engage oppressed and marginalized voices and get them centered, like I said, in place and policymaking within parks planning for the Portland metropolitan region. That was my job. And it had other stuff involved with it, I'm sure, as anyone knows with any job. Um, but Matan, can you give yourself a, 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 an introduction, adding to anything I may have missed, and and kind of let us know where what you do now? And then I'm going to ask you a little more about who you are also. Yeah, definitely. Um, thanks for having me, Alan. Uh, I'm really happy to be here and for all the super kind things that you said about me. <laughs> Um, let's see. I, yeah, I'm, I'm Matan Gold, he, him, she, pronoun. Um, I was born in the San Fernando Valley, which is like Northwest of Hollywood, California. I'm very proud to be from there, like predominantly, you know, working class, predominantly BIPOC area. Um, I didn't think I would ever work for local government. Like that was not like ever the plan. I got a degree in creative writing. It's really interesting, right? Like during my day job, I think very often on the macro level, right? I, I think about systems and structures and the way that white supremacy and the colonial project continue to enact uh, violence and also profit from the labor of those most marginalized, most harmed. Um, and thinking in terms of like what my elevator pitch is whenever someone asks me what my job is, I, I think of it as. Um, facilitating access to natural spaces for those most harmed by white supremacy and the colonial project. And I frame it in that way, right? Because I'm not just talking about BIPOC folk, though in many ways, like they are the they are the communities that I emphasize most, but I'm also thinking about unhoused folk. I'm thinking about folks with low income. I'm thinking about folks with disabilities. Um, I'm thinking about undocumented folks. Um, and I think it's really important uh, I think that very often folks just use BIPOC as this like umbrella term for oppression. And um, we all live at the intersections of multiple identities. Um, and so I think that it's important to be able to name and call out those identities um, in order not to sort of collapse everyone. Oh, but when, anyways, what I was saying about like, I think on the macro, but when I do my writing, um, which is basically all the time outside of work I, I spend or try to spend writing. Um, I'm very often writing about the micro and I find that I'm able to, to be, it's a different type of humanity, right? Like I'm, uh, I'm deeply interested in my writing about writing around folks who hold power and enact violence or folks who may not hold power and still enact violence. And then in my day job, I'm literally just thinking about like, how can I push forward policies that lead to the most equitable outcomes for those, you know, most harmed by white supremacy in the colonial project. It's like in your day job, you're like, and how do I enact and support policies that don't enact, don't, don't enact. Yep. Like, <laughs> yeah, doing my best. <laughs> so interesting. Oh, Matan, I didn't know that about you with your writing background. That's so interesting. Um, yeah. Before I maybe wander down that questioning line, can you give us like a two minute snapshot of what it was like in your neighborhood when you were a kid? Yeah, um, that's interesting. So, 
so I'm black and Filipino and I'm adopted by white parents. My siblings are also some amalgamation of black and uh, Filipino. Um, the Valley is super interesting, right? It like historically is known as the hand that feeds LA because it was mainly farmland. It's like this basin of 2 million people. Um, it's predominantly Latinx, but definitely like big populations of like Persian folk, Armenians, Russians, Israelis, like a pretty decent sized like Filipino population, like Koreans, Japanese folk, like Chinese folk. Um, and then like definitely white folk, but it's also class-wise, like super diverse because there's a part of the Valley called Studio City and it's called Studio City because that's where all the studios are. Mm -hmm. um, and so like I grew up like really close contact to the world of Hollywood. Like I grew up with kids who were child actors. Um, I grew up with a number of children who were the children of celebrities. Um, but I lived in like a fairly like lower middle class working class area and but if you well no one <laughs> no one walks in LA actually that's not true uh poor people walk in LA like <laughs> that's literally true um but like you drive anywhere like five minutes you can encounter mansions and then you can encounter like pretty stiff poverty um, and so I, I feel like I, I lived on the border of all of that. And so I, I feel very privileged for the upbringing that I had, you know, like my parents were working class, neither of my parents went to college. Um, but certainly, you know, like the, the lights never went out. We, we, you know, we never went without food. Um, but I was able to experience multiple different um, existences and lives um, yeah, the valley is a very strange place, um, and I'm and I am very proud to be from there. Thanks for that sharing, and uh, just because this is also a conversation today, um, that's so interesting. I think um, so. My degree was in geography. I wanted to. Mm. I, I initially just wanted to be a National Geographic photographer, <laughs> um, and I, my mom was like, "No." <laughs> <laughs> You need to make like, you need to have like a, you, I came to America so I could have a daughter who could be the mm -hmm. boss. Like that's mm -hmm. so, I had, I have had that narrative in my mind, uh, growing up that the, the opportunities I had as an Asian woman in the United States were so high compared to what she could do, that there was this very big obligation to, um, be uber successful. I don't think I've yes. uh, met any sort of. <laughs> <laughs> I've never hit the mark, um, but I'm quite happy with where I'm at now. So it's okay. Perfect. Um, but I, I, I just, uh, we have a lot of similarities in the edges. I think that we may have traversed, um, when I was born, neither of my parents had a college degree. Um, mm. my dad got his bachelor's when I was in elementary school, he went to like, uh, kind of a night school situation. And then when I finished middle school, he had, he had gotten a master's degree. So, and, wow. and my dad is, um, Polish American. So he's white American, mm -hmm. but third generation and very, I still feel like very Polish for a lot of the stuff, <laughs> like energy wise. Um, and then, um, yeah, my mom's from Korea and she did not continue her education. So she, uh, incredibly smart and did good things. Um, but 
you know, I wasn't from like the dual degree holding uh, mm-hmm. super high revenue family until I was older because my dad had continued his education. Yeah. I was able to get that. But um, we moved into our first house when I was born. And then, um, and it was in this uh, Aurora, Colorado is uh, known pretty much for immigrants and black population, like the black population, the Korean population, the Latinx population probably today. Um, And so it's very diverse. And we lived in Aurora for my first two years. I remember nothing of it, but my entire Korean family has stayed there. And so um, I was in Aurora a lot. And my cousins, because they came over from Korea, um, as they were already born in Korea and then they came over, um, and then their parents didn't have access to the schooling and the language and everything the way that I did, because my dad was already a white American. Like I Mm -hmm. grew up across the bridge of the difference and I could feel how my Americanness and my whiteness, um, really gave me it legs up. And I didn't notice, I didn't notice the tension of it as a child, but my mom has told me a lot about how much my cousins, particularly my older girl cousin was really jealous of the things mm-hmm. that I had. And also how I looked, cause I had such a Western look compared to her, which is the nice Asian way back in the nineties of saying I looked more white. And, mm-hmm. and so it was just really, it was really interesting. And I'm, I'm not in touch with there's so many reasons there's mental illness going on in that side of the family, which you know about a little bit. I don't know if the people listening do, but, um, there's a huge, just, I I'm not really in touch with that part of my, my family anymore. My culture, my grandmother passed and that was kind of the end of it. Um, but I, I I'm wandering quite a bit, but I ended up growing up in these like different neighborhoods every few years. Mm -hmm. They just kept getting nicer. Mm -hmm. They kept getting Mm. nicer. So I wasn't, and I grew up in Colorado for the most part. And then uh, Houston outside of uh, actually a suburb outside of Houston and Texas for high school. And so the pockets I was in were not as maybe in Houston it was, but they weren't as quite economically diverse as kind of what you're describing. I wasn't going from abject poverty to the mansion down the street. Like you Mm -hmm. described, I was more sort of moving from one thing to the next. And we were never in abject poverty. Like we've always had enough. Um, but you know, as I got older and then in Texas, cause property values are super cheap there. I mean, I ended up in a 3000 square foot home with my own bathroom and bedroom and Whoa. like all that by the time I was in high school, but like in elementary school, we were in this like 1970s built stock suburban, um, neighborhood. And I was thinking about it recently and it's, it's a neighborhood that, um, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't terrible, but it wasn't great, but I had way more mixing with different economic groups of people mm-hmm. than I did mm-hmm. when I was in high school. And that shaping is so strange. And then also like you and I to both be kind of mixed race, like there are so many boundaries that we traverse that have really interesting perspectives and then other blind spots that it takes a long time to find somebody who can help you see it because it's a blind spot that's like unique to the weird position. I think that we grow up in sometimes. Does that make sense? Totally. Um, I'll stop talking. No, 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 no. <laughs> I, I didn't know that you grew up uh, in Aurora and, and yeah, the, the moving around um, and the, that feeling of being on the periphery, um, man, I'm, I'm losing her name and it's, I don't want to like describe her as this because she is more than this, but <laughs> she is Alice Walker's daughter. Um, and she is a writer, um, in her own right and is a very great writer. She's actually the, the, the person who coined third wave feminism. Um, 
she she's like a phenomenal writer and i i recently read her memoir and she she talks a lot about um not just being on the the margins but literally when in conversation being at a distance in order to not fully hear all the time and i don't know if you ever experienced that but i definitely experienced that particularly around white folks of like i want to love you and I want to be in relationship with you. And in order to do that, I have to turn down the volume on you because guaranteed you're going to say something that's going to harm me. Matan, I did the opposite of that. Oh, interesting. Um, I want to be close to you. I want to be a part of you. I want to have everything. So I'm going to turn down a part of me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Be inside of yeah. yeah. I, I like know a lot of what that feels like for a personal. That makes me like, oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I th- I've been thinking about this a lot lady, lately about how um, I think that my parents got like 99 things out of 100 correct. It's just that one thing that they didn't correct get, get correct was um, guidance on race. And that's like 90% of like my identity, right? Like, and I just, I'm the oldest of my siblings and I had no one to guide me in terms of what it means to be, you know, um, a black and Filipino, like cishet, I understand how to be that, but like, like being black and Filipino, how do I move through the world in that way? Um, and though I was from, you know, uh, a sort of racially and ethnically diverse area, um, the Valley is only 3% black. So it's, there's no black people in the valley. And so like, what does it mean for me to hold this body and to move through the world? And I'm, I'm not saying that, that this is how you felt, but I know that for so many mixed race folk, there can have been that tension in the past of like wanting to fit in, wanting to blend in and, and wanting to take on um, whiteness in certain ways. And for whatever reason it is, I never wanted that. Like I was always like from the beginning, like very much like, absolutely not. I am very proud to be what I am, even though I don't know what that is. And so I learned to be black and brown in opposition to very much a lot of what I was seeing, right? Like I, like in the sense of being othered, that is how I learned to create an identity around that othering. Um, and like now in my thirties, I'm just like, well, I gotta like unpack all of that. Cause like, that is not what it, that is not necessarily what it means to be black and Filipino moving through the world. Well, what I love though about it is like, these are the response mechanisms that we create for our safety, security, and well-being as we're growing up. Right. Like, how do I, like, I love hearing that your response to the culture around you was to actually affirm yourself, right? And I can't even say it's because you didn't have white parents because you totally had white parents, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and and on my end, um, there was such, uh, I mean, all of our narratives are so different for why people come to this country and like what's motivating them. And, and for me, it was, uh, um, I, I used to pride myself and I have a tattoo. It's fairly large on my body that no one can see. Cause I got it in a good spot. Um, <laughs> <laughs> my girlfriends in college were like, say what you said, you were a nickel and dime size thing. And that thing is across your entire back. What the hell? 
Um, and, uh, but I got a chameleon because mm, I was so proud of my ability to fit in to every situation and be accepted. That was my mm-hmm. fundamental goal. And I grew up, so Aurora was more diverse and then, but that was only until I was two. Then we moved to the country. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. imagine, and my hair was different and I looked different as a child. I looked mm-hmm. very Korean. I, I, I think I still look Korean, but I don't think I look as Korean as I did when I was a kid. And um, imagine that in a small rural town in Southeastern, like Colorado, uh, going to kindergarten and being the only one. Right. And so, and, and people would like, I remember people like peeking in when I was in the bathroom, trying to peek in through the crack because they wanted to see if my body was the same as their body. Whoa. Yeah. Whoa. I remember being very, very weirded out, you know, and they were really young and this is five, six, seven years old. And so the the things that they would say were not overtly harmful, right? Because children are children, mm-hmm. but children mm-hmm. are curious. And none of these kids had seen a Chinese person, which is what I was dubbed, um, of course, yeah. right? Yeah. And um, so survival for me was like fitting in. Mm-hmm. I'm talking too much. Mm-hmm. You're just giving me therapy here. Do you remember b- bringing this up to your mom? Like this? Um... Nothing. I never told anything that happened mm-hmm. to me. Yeah. I didn't do that either. Um, it was like, I was bullied for in elementary school and middle school and my parents never knew it. And I got shoved, kicked, punched, attacked with a knife. Once if my mom heard this, she would not believe it. And this was now in Mm -hmm. Arvada, Colorado. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I, one, one of the first essays that, um, that a, a literary journal ever published of mine was like this, uh, Man, I can't even remember what it was. Um, it was, I just remember pieces of it. And it was like this list poem, not list poem. It was an essay. It was a list essay of like every single time a white person called me a nigger with a hard R or a nigger with an A and like throughout my life. And it's happened, you know, it, the last time it happened, I was probably or like said in front of me, I was, it was, I was in college and that's the last time that I ever allowed it to happen in front of me. But I bring that up because I remember the first time that I got called the hard R and I think I was like eight years old. I was at, over at a friend's house. Um, and that friend, we, the thing that we had in common was skateboarding. Um, and we were skating and I, he was Mormon and like, he was the only Mormon person that I'd ever met. And I just remember like hearing somewhere, you know, in the, the zeitgeist, in the ether, just like, oh, Mormons don't drink soda. And I just like remember asking him that, like, oh, do you drink soda? Um, and like that, like set him off. And he just called me like hard R like seven times in a row. And I just like stopped. And I was like, I know that that's not good. Like, I just, I know that like what he just did was trying to enact violence. Like he felt defensive, he felt scared. And he was like, oh, I'm going to use this weapon that I have in my back pocket that I don't even know the gravity of this weapon. Um, And I just like looked at him and I was like, well, I'm eight years old. Guess we're just going to keep skateboarding. Cause like, 
my mom's not here to pick me up yet. And my mother came to pick me up and she asked me like, oh, how was it? And I looked her straight in the face and I said, oh, it was great. Um, because I knew she had nothing to offer me. Like I knew she had zero explanation, like that she was going to be able to do nothing about it. And like, really, like it's been that way ever since I was eight years old of just knowing that my parents thought, um, you know, they were, you know, like well-intentioned liberal white folks thinking that like, oh, as like racism won't enter into our household. As long as like we love our children enough, like racism can't hurt them. Um, and like they would admit this, you know, today very much so that like, I have been fundamental in their understanding of race and power and like, like the body politic of, of race. Um, and then I also think about the absolute distance that they have from understanding race as well. And it kind of breaks my heart. Cause I'm like, yo, like you've literally had children of color for 30 years now. And if you can't get it, what is what is the hope? Um, and then the, I don't know if you feel this way necessarily with your father, and I don't want to project that you do, but there's it. There's a part of me that that feels this deep sadness of like, here is this thing like being black and Filipino that is so essential to my existence, both both externally and internally, and this is something that my parents fundamentally do not share with me, and and on some fundamental level cannot understand. And there's a beauty in being able to um, to still have the deep, loving relationship that I have with my family. But I think it also speaks to something that you were talking about earlier of like this immense capacity to forgive um, the constant microaggressions, like this intense capacity to and grace to constantly find the humanity in those who um, bludgeon when they don't know that they're doing that. Um, and I think that that's like a real power and also the, 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 you know, the other side of that coin is that you're, that you're turning down the volume on, on who you are. Oh, there's like so much that you just said around like the relationship with my dad, the, like, and and when you're asking it, you're kind of asking around, like, they're getting it right? Like, that my yeah, dad is a yeah. kid in color, and um, they don't look like every. So this is how my dad dealt with it. And for a child growing up in the 80s and 90s is probably the best that could have been done. And also yes. for, like, where my dad is as a person. Uh, yeah, like he, he loves me so fiercely forever. I know he does. And he and I have had some pretty intense, uh, we have an intense relationship as I would say is a good way to put it. Um, he taught me to defend myself because he wanted, he wanted to arm me. And he told me if anyone ever, and I don't think it came overtly from him going, my daughter looks different than most Mm. of the kids at school. But he knew that he wanted me to have permission to fight back. And so um, I, I always fought back. And it's why I got in trouble mm. <laughs> handfuls of times. Um, I mean, I, tr- I was a competitive kickboxer, Matan. Oh, were you? <laughs> like I was trained. I knew how to fight back. And that reputation helped a lot. 
Mm. for some of the things that were happening in my life. Like I could get like the briefest of brief stories is that my best friend, uh, I didn't realize it until high school, but my best friends in elementary school and middle school were the other two half Asian girls. <laughs> I didn't, I really yeah. didn't notice it until I was about 17. That's so interesting. That's so and and uh, my friend Catherine and I were walking home from seventh grade. So we got off the middle school bus and we're walking home in our neighborhood. So we were in seventh grade and a group of sixth grade girls were crossing us um, mm-hmm. the other, going the other direction. And they just every day for like this kind of few week period, they were always yelling racial slurs at us, like mm-hmm. anti-Asian slurs. And I finally, because it was just words and, you know, we were like, oh, God, this is so dumb. But I finally had enough of it. I, I remember this. I took off the bag I was wearing. I took, it was winter. I took off the gloves I was wearing. I gave them to my friend and I approached the pack. I approached the pack of girls. I'm just a year older than them. And I knew who the ringleader was. And Matana grabbed her around the neck and I slammed her against a fence. And I told her to leave me the fuck alone. Yeah. Yeah. And then. And then I had all their big sisters on my ass in middle school for like the rest of the yeah. ready to, yeah. I got kicked. I got slammed into lockers. Mm-hmm. I got like, all, and no, no, there's no adult. <laughs> like, oh yeah. Never. Yeah. <laughs> right. But the reputation, finally, one of my friends, this is like a, my white ally in eighth, seventh grade, right? Mandy. She, t- <laughs> she danced with one of these girls and she said, um, I would be so scared if Ellen was actually really oh, mad at me. Funny. Because she has a black belt in karate. Like, none of this is true. Like, yeah. yes, I know how to fight, yeah, yeah. but I'm not a black belt. It's the wrong, <laughs> it's the wrong sport. Yeah, wrong. Yeah. yeah. But they, it's, it, it abrupt, like, she ended it. She ended it for mm. me. It was really interesting. Mm. And so, like, yeah, I was armed, but I didn't have mm-hmm. tools. Mm-hmm. And there was no, you know, there was no um, looking at it from a systemic way, the, the way that we do now, you know? There was no talking to teach, and my my parents, you know, whatever was going on. Like I, I think there was eyes on us, but there wasn't knowledge. And I felt like my mom. I felt like the person I could talk to about it would be my mom. My dad was a bit of a workaholic, um, and I just was like, she doesn't know. She didn't grow up here. She doesn't know yeah. how to deal with. Yeah, the system. I, I'm I'm so fascinated by um, particularly folks of color who um, really, I mean any immigrant to this country, you are entering into the mire that is like North American history. Um, And it's just such a fundamentally different beast than what you could possibly have known. So my my father's from Northern England and like, it's just so interesting to think about, like to listen to the way to him try to verbalize race when he grew up in an unracialized world and in, and in a country that, yes, certainly a colonial power, but very, uh, it's very recent in history that they imported, you know, like folks of color, like, you know, laborers of color. Um, and one of the things, and I, I'm so interested by folks of color who immigrate to this country and try to, and particularly when they have children and watching their children wrestle with, you know, racism and not having the tools to be able to fully support their children in this way is, I can't imagine like what that, the sort of inner turmoil that a parent of color has to go through. So um, much pain. 
so much pain. And then also like the, the very much wanting your child to succeed in this country, knowing that on some level that means assimilation to this country, but also wanting to retain the, the, your, the culture of like your home and like your, your birth country. Um, I, yeah, I don't know. That sounds real tough. (laughs) (laughs) That's all I got. Like, yep, that sounds tough all around because like white supremacy makes everyone's day harder. <laughs> oh my gosh. It, it so does. This feels like a little bit of a good spot. So, I mean, I wanted to ask you a couple of questions about growing yeah, up, definitely. but we look what we just did. We just had like a <laughs> mini session that we don't, I don't get to have very often. So thank you. Um, but it, it's a good place. Like, so where we're at now and, and the way, like the way that our, I mean, like, this is fundamentally like white <laughs> people who have experiences like us and different experiences as us, but it are not the dominant experiences need to be in places making policies. So what does it look like for, for you today to be doing work? And we don't have to dive into the, like the wonky policiness mm-hmm. of it. Right. But the, the, the need for obviously more voices and perspectives in the multiple layers of where we enact things across the country. Um, and then how I'm so curious about your, your take on those things. Well, that's like, like the, that's like the ultimate question, right? Like, um, I know you don't have the perfect that, answer. Yeah, either, you know, right? No, I, have, I don't even know if I have a answer. Right. Um, I, so, okay. So operating from the premise that like my liberation is tied to your liberation. And I, I think it's really important. Um, Look, if I was a cis het white dude, I would really be struggling to figure out and 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 I should say, and I was interested in liberation work. I was interested in how to support folks who are being, you know, systemically disenfranchised, systemically harmed. I don't know what my place would be in the world. Um, and for me, I I I think it's deeply important for white folks to realize that they are also harmed by white supremacy. Yeah. That, that, that this is like, I like all the, the trial and tribulation that white folks are experiencing is because of the intersection of like late capitalism and white supremacy and the colonial project. Like this isn't good for anyone. Um, and you know, I have a number of white allies who hold similar feelings and, and similar understandings. And that's, it. I think on some level makes it easier for them to be able to sort of dive into the work, right? Um, I don't think I answered your question. I think your question was really like, Nope. It's okay. I like where this is going. Keep going. (laughs) Or like, like, why is it important to have a multiplicity and a diversity of opinions and views and life experiences at a decision-making table. Um, I think it's really hard to fathom for, for folks who, you know, grew up within the dominant culture, were part of the dominant culture. Sorry, let me, let me back up for a second. I think that there's this, this real difficulty in understanding like existential crisis and then racialized existential crisis 
Because I think that when white folks hear someone like myself talk about systemic oppression, they hear like, you've never been oppressed or you don't have problems. And that is certainly not true. Everyone experiences problems, both one, because of the, like sort of these existential crises that is fundamental to the human condition, and that we all live live on the, under capitalism. And unless you're part of the 1%, you're probably being harmed by capitalism. And also the 1% are being harmed by capitalism because of like climate change. All that being said, I think that it's really hard for folks to fathom just how homogenous decision makers have been up until, wait, still are. Like, it, there's never been a stop gap in just like, if you look at the folks who wrote our constitution, like they wrote it for land owning white men. So that means that that doesn't include white women. Um, that doesn't include disabled white folks. That doesn't include white folks with mental illness. Um, and that doesn't include poor white folks. So that's a very low percentage of white men that constitution was written for. And it's not a far jump to still look at our decision makers now and say, like, who are these decisions being made for? And sure, it's a little broader now, but it still fundamentally comes down to those who own property. And disproportionately, those who own property are going to be white, cis, able-bodied men. And it, it, I'm going off on various tangents because it's such a big um, question, but I'm thinking a lot of Cheryl Harris, who is a, a law professor at UCLA, and her she wrote this essay back in the 90s for the Harvard Law Review. It was about like whiteness as property, that like, that there is that the, like the property value of whiteness. And I'm, and I think a lot about that essay in terms of like, what whiteness gets you. Yeah. And, and the limitation it also gives one. Matan, you know, this, yeah. you're kind of, you, I know that you're circling a, a, a number of themes here that, yeah. and it's hard to do it in a conversation, um, right? Like we're not going to sit here yeah. talking for, this could be a seven hour seminar that you, could <laughs> yeah. if you wanted to on this topic. Um, but I, I, I want to get to this point here and I like this framing of it. I'm interested in it, um, around, um, how did you just say it? Whiteness is property value, something like that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I was thinking about it. Um, I think in relation to sort of like my own, um, just my own experience and identity of the, the fitting inness, but not quite. And it's mm -hmm. in the not quite piece of it that you can see the walls, Yes. Around the, around the ivory tower. Like, let's actually call it the ivory tower. It's apt. <laughs> and, um, it like, if you're in the ivory tower, uh, and you don't know that there's something beyond the ivory tower, because all you've ever done is be in the ivory tower, you might not know that you're trapped. And I think that this is sort of like yes. what you're getting to around how it's harmful for pretty much everybody. Cause like, who's up in the ivory tower, Rapunzel, like she only can get rescued by a guy on a horse. You know, mm -hmm. like, what if we just actually explode the tower and airlift her out? And I'm sorry for this mm -hmm. too, too soon for the analogy of that. But um, like, that is sort of the thing. And I think people are so afraid because you're kind of also talking towards um, that person right now in present time who may be a cisgendered heterosexual white man who's also interested in liberation and mm -hmm. critical race theory and um, all the things that 
could help make things better for everyone. Heart is in the right place. Even reading and intellect is like lining up to learn more. But then what's their role? What's their place? (laughs) People are afraid. And this is like where the groups like Proud Boys comes in, right? Like you're (laughs) trying to erase me by not letting me be in the ivory tower the way that I've been in the ivory tower. And they're an extremist terrorist group. So that's not everyone. But the regular guy who's a manager in a place realizing that everyone on his level of management is white and that it's not serving everyone very well starts mm-hmm. to panic because they think they're going to lose their job and mm-hmm. be replaced mm-hmm. by somebody and it and sort of and like there's a lot of tokenism that comes with that kind of a switch out right but the the role and so it's an identity crisis if i don't yes. have yes. this who am i and yes i'm like laughing because my last coaching client i was talking to um, unrelated to this topic, but really linked with identity and work. And this is where you're talking about how capitalism harms, right? If it doesn't, if you mm-hmm. don't produce, if you don't have money, you don't have value. And then how many people, like when they show up in a place say, I'm so-and-so, and this is what I do, because those oh, are interlinked yep. with their identity. And if they're not able to have that same identity anymore, who are they? And so now mm-hmm. think about how the systems and structures have inhibited so many people from experiencing the fullest expansion of who they could actually be. But it is way too scary because no one, not everyone is ready to go jump in that, that swimming pool of Mm self-exploration. Right. There's no, there's no map. There are so few people who have done it. How do you have uh, knowledge that you're on the right track? And also how do you put food on the table while you're at it? Yeah, Yeah. It's like, It's so complex. Like our liberation is absolutely tied. I'm not like, and like Matan and I are talking about like whiteness and white supremacy, but we're not anti, like, I remember seeing a brochure somewhere. It said anti-racism is anti-white. And I was like, it's not that (laughs) anti-racism is like anti, anti anti-oppressive system Uh where everyone Uh has a place and everyone has permission to expand into the fullness of who they could be. And it's going to be weird because we don't know how to do it. I, I have lots of thoughts. I the one that's popping <laughs> to my mind the most though is thinking of like the 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 person who you're coaching. And I I don't know the line that just like jumped in my head was like, um, "There is no dream job because we don't dream of labor." Uh, I, yeah, I don't know. I'm like very interested in. Um, I, I'm like super interested in anti-capitalist uh, frameworks even though like I am currently benefiting from, from capitalism. But I also think that it's part of our job, particularly BIPOC folks who feel, um, I don't think it's comfort in navigating white spaces. I think it's that we have the ability to navigate white spaces that we need to leverage that ability um, towards the liberation of, you know, various communities. Um, But yeah, like the idea that there is, um, anti-white sentiment is is just as you said like it's related to this sort of identity crisis um and i think that this identity crisis can be felt across like racial lines right i think it just fundamentally comes down to the world is changing and it's not the world that i was born into and it's not the world that i understand and now i i feel a, a great sense of fear because i do not understand this world i think you just nailed it the of what is happening for so many people. Yeah. And I, 
I, you know, I, I think that like, also folks don't want to feel like they, th- there's this deep desire for innocence for any like class of power, right? Whether it's white folks, whether it's cisgendered folks, whether it's wealthy folks, like folks don't want to feel implicated in this. And there's no way that any of us are not implicated in this. Like there is no ethical consumption under capitalism. Like it's, it's impossible. And I think that like, so my grandfather is a huge influence on me um, and his favorite writer was Albert Camus. Um, and I just, I remember when like my grandfather gave me the fall when I was like 16 and it like changed my life. And I was like, oh, I want to be a philosopher now. And then I didn't become one. Cause that's not a thing. <laughs> um, but I think about like, like Camus, you know, like his long, you know, book long essay, the myth of Sisyphus. And just the idea that like, even if it's, you know, a Pyrrhic victory or a Pyrrhic attempt, like, you still have to love the rock. And I think that that's what like liberation work is. Like you have to love the rock, even if the rock's going to roll down the hill every night, like you have no choice. Like life is, life is not a goal, right? It's like, it's the daily like act, right? And, and if folks could focus on those daily acts, I think that they would feel less of that terror so my parents lived in israel for 10 years um that's where my parents met and and my dad has has differing opinions than i do on um palestine israel and many of those reasons is, is because my father in his words learned to become a man in israel and if you critique israel he feels like you are critiquing him and i imagine that when you critique America, for so many, particularly white men who have been brought up under, this is the greatest country on earth that knows the greatest freedoms. And for them, perhaps that's true to an extent, right? Because like, if you don't have, uh, if the ceiling for your town is to be the shift manager at a pizza hut, then you don't have freedom. Like, because freedom is freedom over your time. And if you do not have enough capital to have power over your time, then you are not free fundamentally. If you don't have enough free time to spend with your loved ones and to not have to worry about basic needs, then you are not free. Nevertheless, if you're critiquing this country, you they feel like it is attack upon themselves, which is very interesting to me because I feel like white folks are under attack all the time. It's just, it's just not as overt as it is for trans folk, for folks with disabilities, for BIPOC folk, right? Like we, you and I are very versed in being attacked in a myriad of ways, whether it's like literally in person, whether it's through the media, whether it's literally through history. And in some ways that has prepared us for this moment far better than those who have either held power or who have been adjacent to power. Matan, um, I don't know how you know that yeah. in my in my in my sense of self as like a giant being, I am always wearing warrior clothing. <laughs> <laughs> it's like I'm trying to imagine it's like Joan of Arc meets Xena the Warrior Princess meets like Black Panther, like that. <laughs> yeah. 
I mean, it makes sense. It makes sense, you know, like that you took, you know, that you did kickboxing, right? Like, I think there's a lot, there's so much um, animosity leveled, particularly at, at Black culture for like, oh, the like ostentation, ostentatiousness of like wearing like chains or like wearing Jordans, but you can't afford to pay the rent. And it makes me think of like, Claude McKay's Home to Harlem, which is about a World War I veteran, a Black World War I veteran coming back to Harlem and just like his experience. And he owns two suits. Well, like Black people have never been able to own anything in this country. It's very recently that Black people have literally been able to own their own bodies. And so why would they not adorn those bodies as if they were royalty and as if they were armor, right? Like it is a literal fight every day. And like that armor can look a a myriad of different ways, whether it's I have to wear a tie in order to be taken seriously. I have to wear a tie in order to be able to go into this bank and actually have an account open for myself. Or if it's like, I'm going to be Cameron and I'm going to wear this pink mink on the red carpet because I now have, have enough money so that this white man can't tell me anything. And like, I'm fascinated by that. And it makes me think of the Zora Neale Hurston line where she says, I do not weep for the world. I am too busy sharpening my oyster knife. And like, I think that that's the only way for so many folks with, um, you know, oppressed identities to get through life is to like, well, every day is a fight and I have to find those pockets of joy in the fight. And in many ways I have to learn to love the fight because um, if I don't learn to love the fight, then I will just be taken undertow, you know, beneath this wave. Yeah. Matan, I th- and I think like this is a great sort of circling in around, I mean, this conversation has traversed a wide terrain and you, you're just kind of talking in here on how we show up. And I like this piece that you talked about with the daily act and adorning yourself and you you kind of dove in more deeply on black culture and adornment but we all can adorn in our daily acts because that critique that you were talking about within american identity for the person who's ready to hear it right cuz we're not going to go and decouple someone's identity just through a mm-hmm. conversation mm-hmm. they might be mm-hmm. very mad at us for having this conversation yes. right And, but there's going to be someone who hears it and goes, oh, 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 I don't have to have the identity attached to the other thing. That's actually an entrapment. I'm enslaved to this one notion and I'm no longer allowed to become the more that I am. Like the the ability to decouple for the people who are ready to hear it, your identity from the belief system about why you think you are the way you are today and being willing to explore what that really could be is so juicy and so deep and so necessary. But I love, I want to circle it back. I love the daily. What can we do in the day to day and be present with it to explore softly what that identity could be? I think an important thing kind of, as we wrap up here is that this conversation is not politically correct. And you and I are humans, just like everyone else. And we're taking space to work through and and talk about 
both our experiences and kind of how we see what things are like right now from our perspective. And that just because anyone listening who's made it all the way to the end may not agree with or share everything about our perspectives or how we've said something, it's still a valid perspective because we are not all the same, but fundamentally, like we do all want to be seen and to have our own space. It is deeply important to me that I am constantly working on both my framework and understanding, but particularly my language and constantly moving towards less harmful language. Like I am very, I am very aware of how harmful language can be. And I have certainly used harmful language throughout my life. And I think that it's deeply important that, uh, and that's part of my daily work, right. Is to, is to improve my understanding, um, and my empathy and also my self-awareness around like, how does the language that I currently use, um, harm other folks? Um, like I learned that like, you're, like, we're not supposed to say, uh, we're not supposed to say that's not the framing. We should not say um, kefir lime. We should say like market lime because kefir was a word. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's a slur against black South Africans and it's what colonialists used and they stole that word from Arabic and just used it as a slur. Yeah. But I like that Matan because what you're talking about here is a daily practice and a daily practice for you is looking like how do the words I use, which inform the actions you take, produce less harm. I don't hear you trying to be perfect. I don't feel you. I mean, you might have a moment of judgment and go, oh gosh, I messed up, but I hear you having an uh, you you have freedom to make mistakes and that you're also working continuously to have less harm or to inflict less harm. And I think that I honestly, I feel like I could echo you and I have work to do. I say stuff that I like, I'll fear, I'll feel a thing in the back of my neck and I'm like, that mm-hmm. feels strange. What is the meaning of that word? And like, do I need to go look it up? Like, I remember that tea that I, they finally changed. I think plantation mint. Um Ugh. Like, I remember seeing it at the uh, store being like, this not is good. Like, not good. wrong, right? <laughs> yeah. Mm. But because it's been around for ages and it's a part of the sort of the noise in the background, it can take a while. Yeah. And so like if someone like a, you know, Matan or me or somebody is like, hey, just FYI, this is where that word comes from. Don't punish yourself for having used it. Just take that knowledge and decide how you want to use it in the future, you know? And I think that's the daily practice. I, and I think it's also like, Um, you know, accountability is facing the fear of a loss of a relationship, right? Like people become super defensive and say like, oh, I didn't mean it in that way. Or like, uh, no, 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 no. And I think it all comes from a place of like, I don't want people to view me as a racist or homophobic or, or whatever it is. And where that's coming from is that you do not want to lose relationships and I feel like if folks were able, and I think it's, I'm not saying that it's easy and I'm not saying that I'm fully capable of doing it, but if you were to pause in that moment and say like, oh, I fundamentally then care about these relationships. Maybe I should believe this person who is telling me that I have harmed them. Or maybe I should believe this person who's who's trying to help me be better um, instead of becoming defensive, instead of not believing folks. Um, 
and that's a really hard practice, right? Like it's taken, I'm not, it's, it, it took me many, many years to learn how to apologize properly, to apologize in a way that did not place burden upon the person who I had victimized or the person who I had harmed. Um, and that's a very hard, it's very hard to do a good apology. It's very hard to apologize in a way where both parties can walk away feeling like restoration occurred. Um, yeah, I don't know. Like, we should all learn how to apologize. <laughs> like, I think that there should be a, a course on how to apologize. I'd like to take it. I don't think I'm perfect at it. Um, yeah, I really appreciate that. Matan, I really want to thank you. We're just kind of coming up on the end of our time here today. For sure. Um, I want to thank you so much for being here, for having such an engaged and in-depth and authentic and robust conversation around just the things that we see, feel, hear, do, experience, and are trying to learn more about and do better as we go forward. So thank you. Definitely. Thank you so much for having me. This was like really wonderful. Um, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I, I feel very, I feel very honored that you asked me to be uh, on this podcast. Thanks, Matan. Thanks for listening to my conversation today with Matan Gold. I'm really glad you got to hear it and participate in in just what it is of these many voices and views that create the world that we live in and and look for today. One of the things that I was uh, struck by as I was recording was just noting that these are not about hearing views, perspectives, and points of view through only a social media feed. And I recognize a lot of people follow content that really moves and inspires them, but the depth of what we're able to get to is really through relationships and conversations. And it's been hard the past year and a half to foster those just given the physical distance that we've needed to maintain to keep one another safe. And so while it's hard and, and challenging, it's also an opportunity to to reach out and reconnect with people, particularly if you if you really care about them as people, their points of view, their perspectives. You don't need to have this kind of conversation be the impetus for reconnection, but just knowing that it is within our relationships um, where we have the strongest power and influence to encourage one another to reach for our best selves. And that's something that's always important to me and why I feel so honored and fortunate and privileged to have this kind of a opportunity and platform to have these kind of talks with folks that I normally wouldn't get to have in a day-to-day, -day, particularly through the kind of contact times that we're living in. And um, I really want to thank you for your participation and for those of you who um, do write in to let me know how an episode or a show has affected you. It means a lot because even those small touches are the, the building blocks of more connectivity and connections. And how we treat one another is fundamentally going to be how we meet the day-to-day -day for all the challenges that we have. So I just wanted to say that I uh, kind of wished we had the space and time to dive into it in our own conversation, but it's what it's what this most reminded me of as I kind of went back through listening to it again. Um, I really thank you all for being here. You are a part of what makes the 
podcast possible and why I do it. And thanks so much 